You are listening to a message from Mosaic Knox. For more information about our church, visit mosaicknox.org. My little daughter, Magdalena, is dead. It is crazy how sick at heart I have been. So much do I grieve for her. Even the death of Jesus is unable to take all this away as it should. I am angry with myself because I am unable to experience joy. Martin Luther on his 13-year-old dying. I feel that God does not want me, that God is not God, and that God does not exist. Mother Teresa in her diary. What chokes every prayer and every hope is the memory of all the prayers my wife and I offered and all the false hopes we had. Step by step, we were led up the garden path time after time. When he seemed most gracious, he was really preparing the next torture. C.S. Lewis, reflecting on the loss of joy, his wife. Some of the pillars of the Christian faith the last 600 years, none of them immune to the ache of unanswered prayer. To be human is to feel the ache of unanswered prayer. Why is there death is a theological question. And it can be answered very bluntly and very academically. When evil made its grand entrance, two things accompanied evil, sin and death. Most people in this room would adhere to that response, intellectually at least. And experientially, we know that to be true, whether it is needless violence, stillborn births, overdose, parentless children, or plasma cell leukemia. We all look around us and inside us and think, yeah, the world is broken and the brokenness leads to death. But just because something can be answered theologically, And just because it can be answered experientially does not mean that the answer satisfies entirely. Yeah, I understand why there's death, but why? Do you hear the difference? I can explain to you why the Holocaust happened, but I can't explain to you why the Holocaust happened. I can write a paper defending original sin as the inflection point for the Tulsa massacre, but I have a very hard time explaining why more than 300 people were burned and charred by an armed mob. I can make the case for why sin affects each of us, and I can't really explain to a mother why she has to bury her child. Sometimes we need brutally honest responses that have clear-cut Answers. Jesus helps us with that. And sometimes we need brutally honest responses that don't have clear cut answers. And Jesus helps us with that. There are creatures in this world that I dislike mosquitoes, wasps, even cats. 
And all of those creatures have purposes. I can reckon with them. A mosquito bites me in order to get food. A wasp stings me because it feels threatened. And a cat. Well, I'm not sure cats actually have purposes. Thomases and Hills, notwithstanding your cats. That's not true. They actually walk around with an arrogant smug about them because we need animals to cut humans down to actual size. But I can rationalize all that pretty, pretty easily. But what about viruses? There's been quite the chat of the last three years about viruses. How they form, how they spread, how they mutate. And even after all of that, the majority of us in this room still don't know how it all really happens. The amount of viruses in the world today are somewhere around 1 times 10 to the 31st power. If you were to lay them out like a deck of cards, they would stretch for a hundred million light years. And most of them make people's lives miserable. Few things express the problem of evil more sharply than a virus. We're not talking about vengeance taken by one human being against another. We're not talking about personal choices that snowball into a path of harm. We're not even talking about leaders systematically dismantling people groups. We're talking about living organisms, living creatures, that sole purpose is to attack the body from the inside out. So why is there evil? Why, why are there viruses in the world? The typical responses go like this. Suffering exists because humans have free will. That works for mass shootings. It doesn't really work for cancer. Suffering exists to enhance our souls and prepare us for eternity. That doesn't really work when viral infections disproportionately take the lives of the young, the vulnerable, and the poor, while the ones who often need the most soul work, according to the scriptures, are the rich and the powerful who can often escape. God's intention is, God's intention is never for there to be suffering. And yet, at least theologically, we believe that God can do something about suffering, and yet from our vantage point, we haven't experienced all of it yet. So it appears, potentially, that his intentions don't always coincide with his actions. Suffering is the natural consequence of our sin. Yes, and that's an extremely tough sell when a baby contracts HIV in utero. There is an all-loving, all-powerful God. Does that loving God create and sustain viruses that survive only by afflicting other creatures? If you were to consider the science of it, and you were really to stop and think about it, what would you say? Why is our natural default and I have good news for you, and I have bad news for you. There is a response to that question. It's actually a biblical response, and it is just as theological as any other argument that I have probably ever given from this platform. And I believe it to be the most honest response and the most helpful response. 
That is the good news. The bad news is that the response, as biblical and theologically accurate as it might be, is unbelievably frustrating. And yet, it's enormously important. Why? Three words. I don't know. I don't know. Why fill in the blank? Fill in the thing that makes fundamentally no sense and you have an impossible time reconciling that thing with the God that you know. One of the most infuriating and comforting responses that is found all over the Bible. I don't know. Does your relationship with God and your reading of the scriptures and your prayer life and your walking around as a human being leave room for that response? See, that is the sort of punchline that gets this sermon thrown out. That is the kind of punchline that gets books thrown across the room. That's the response that says, nope, I ain't doing that. You're telling me that the answer to the most fundamental question I have about the most painful thing I've experienced is that you don't know. Correct. But here's the lie we want to believe so badly. You could be given the most concrete, instructive reason for why something happened, and it probably wouldn't make a difference internally because you would feel the same one. Say someone's death leads to multitudes of people coming to faith, of revivals happening, of churches being planted. Consider the greatest outcomes of someone you know dying, and then potentially the greatest outcome of your own life, right? You become a more patient person, a more loving person, a more generous person. Maybe this is just me, and maybe this is a raw moment. But here we are. I imagine that a lot of us would trade most of that to have someone back. It is true that our unanswered prayers can teach us great truths and make us more sensitive to others. It's true that we absolutely can be refined by suffering. But when the loss is extraordinarily profound, we would trade every good thing wrought in our lives by affliction just to have that person or that wholeness or that hope back. And yet, we cannot choose. My point, there is the problem of evil. Atheists have debunked God with the arguments. Humanists have combated God with the arguments. Christians have dismissed the arguments altogether with an attempt to sloppily justify the problem of evil when they would be better off more in line with the scriptures and more in line with the mothers and fathers of the faith passed down to provide less of a box answer and more of a human one. Why is there senseless death in the world? I don't know. The problem of evil is the problem of the world. And one of the underlying problems of evil is at times our experience of the silence of God. 
The scriptures start with God speaking a word, let there be light, and then light happens. And the scriptures end with a whole chorus of saints, what sounded like the roar of a great multitude in heaven shouting, hallelujah. God creates by his speaking. He changes things by his speaking. He does miraculous things all throughout the Bible by his speaking. But in between these words spoken and these praises sung, the story of God is not about God speaking incessantly. We read the Old Testament and the Gospels and the early church accounts as if the only experience people have of Yahweh is Him speaking. Eugene Peterson gave his life's work to the Scriptures, combing through historical backdrop of every word in the English Bible so as to get a modern-day paraphrase of what we know as the message. And one of the insights he gives us is utterly fascinating. The story in which God does his saving work arises among a people whose primary experience of God is his absence. We read the Bible and we think that it's just full of God answering prayer, and it is, as is our life. And it's also full of a lot of unanswered prayer, as is true of our life. If you look back at the prophets, prophets Enoch, Noah, Abraham, all mentioned in the Hall of Faith in Hebrews, the patriarchs of Israel were all living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. Moses says, I begged the Lord at that time, saying, Lord, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand. For what God is there in heaven and or on earth that can do works like yours and mighty acts like yours? Please let me go over and see the good land that is beyond the Jordan, that fine mountain in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and didn't listen to me. The Lord said to me, let this satisfy you. Speak no more to me of this matter. David begged God for his child. He fasted. He prayed 24-7 passionately with tears, more like an honest begging than a polite asking. He is pleading with God to spare his child and God meets him with silence. And on the seventh day, the baby dies. And it should be said that in some ways, we know why the Lord does not answer David's prayer. It is because of his sin. But we do not. Do we know why? I don't think we know why the Lord did not answer Bathsheba's prayer for the child to live. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. The people of God have been taken captive by the Babylonians. And listen to what God says. Therefore, don't pray for this people, neither lift up a cry nor prayer for them, neither make intercession for them, for I will not hear you. And later in Lamentations, he says, you have covered yourself with a cloud so that no prayer can get through. The entire book of Job is one long question about suffering. And the first sentence of the book makes it all the more frustrating. There was a man 
whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, and the one who feared God and turned away from evil, there was none like him on earth. And what happens to Job's life? Chaos. Straight chaos. And maybe one of the most unsettling and yet strangely comforting realities is that Jesus prayed intensely and all his prayers were not answered, or at least not answered in the way he wanted them answered. My soul is very sorrowful even unto death. We're talking serious levels of anguish, pain, anxiety, heaviness. The weight is unbearable for any other human being on planet Earth. We're talking about what doctors call Hematidrosis, in which the capillaries near the sweat glands rupture because there's so much stress, so that someone's sweat begins to get tinged with blood. And going a little farther, he fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. It's like an utter collapse. I just imagine Jesus in an open field hitting his knees, face down, saying, is it really not possible? There has got to be another way. The man who most intimately knew the Father's heart, who embodied the Father's heart, is pleading with the Father, this cannot be it. Abba, Abba, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Mark's gospel was written in Greek. Abba is not Greek. It is Aramaic. Mark chooses to draw back the curtain and let us in on one of the most intimate requests of Jesus' heart. He's driving home the point. There is real intimacy and real humanity in Jesus' prayer life. We tend to assume that there is a necessary depth of spirituality to which you must aspire, a technique we are somehow lacking or a mystical revelation that will unlock the miracles we want. But Jesus taught consistently that the power of prayer is relational, not transactional. He taught the disciples to begin their prayers, our Father. He told the crowds that God loves to give good gifts to them because they are his kids. And he insisted that the purpose of prayer is the Father's glory and that the power of prayer flows from the Father's kindness. Ultimately, he addressed the most desperate prayers of his life to the one he simply and childishly called Abba. Whenever we come to God with an open wound of longing, we come to a father who loves us deeply. Peter says, Peter, the man who heard Jesus praying in the garden, he says, cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. He goes on and says, yet not what I will, but what you will. And we read this and we read our own prayers into it. We're asking something and then we tail it off at the end. I mean, this is what I want, but it may not be what you want. So you do what you're going to do anyway. That is not what is happening here. It's less about resignation of what God is already going to do and more about complete and total trust in the midst of asking God, don't do it this way. It's not what I want. It's not what I'm asking. Don't do it this way. And 
I am your child. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. Repetition. There has to be another way. There has to be another way. And then we look at what Jesus actually prayed in the garden, and we still experience some of that not being answered. In John 17, he says, Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. How are we doing with that? I mean, the American church has been constantly splintered across, since the modern conception of this country along the lines of race. And then you look at it along denominational lines, and we're just talking about the U.S. Certainly this prayer has not been completely answered yet. And we know that in fact, Jesus' prayer, remove this cup from me, was not answered. The cry of the cross is Jesus quoting Psalm 22 to express his most intense experience of humanity. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Here's the point. Jesus, the Son of God, is not immune to heaven's silence. The curtain of heaven was shut, and the next 48 hours of his life are where we live so much of ours. The church calendar calls it Holy Saturday. It is the in-between. We are caught in the in-between. We have seen God do things in our life. We have heard God speak to us in our life. We've witnessed God's work in loving and wild ways in our life. And we've read the end of the book, and we even believe that the end is good and it's coming, and yet this is where I live the majority of my life, somewhere between hoping that yesterday's experience of God's presence will somehow suffice today for God's absence. We feel the ache of God's absence in our life. Am I praying to a wall? Does God even notice the chaos? Does He even care? What's worse? A God who can do something and chooses not to, or a God who can't do something but empathizes with your requests. Neither provide comfort, both provide hopelessness. I have come to believe that so much of our life is marked by the absence of God. And wanting desperately to receive His silence as a gift, even though I typically experience it as a curse. Pete Gregg is the international director of the 24-7 Prayer Network. And if you know anything about this network, you know their whole ministry is based on round-the-clock prayer. 78 countries, 22,000 prayer rooms, where 24-7, 365, prayer is happening. So you would suspect that the founder and president of an organization that has inspired so much hope around hearing from God would balk at the idea of God's absence. But in fact, the opposite is true. I'm going to read something he wrote last year that I have saved in my notes, and I read it once a week. It's a little long, and I'm going to read it pretty slowly because I want it to really land on you. So just hang with me. There is an insidious charade propagated continually in certain wings of the church 
that intimacy with God can be experienced continually on demand whenever we pause to pray, whenever we raise our hands in worship, and whenever we sip from the cup of communion. This is a lie. We propagate this delusion in many ways by smiling ecstatically in worship when in fact we're thinking about our dinner, by teaching some parts of the Bible but not others, by assuming responsibility for God's PR, by conflating the ancient heresy of Gnosticism with the modern heresy of experientialism, by spotlighting our occasional moments of ecstasy, epiphany, and breakthrough while dismissing entire seasons of disappointment, dullness, and doubt. Many years ago, you 2 upset a lot of Christians by releasing a song called, I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. We liked the bit where Bono sings, You broke the bonds and you loosed the chains, carried the cross of my shame, you know I believe it. So far, so good. But then he's saying, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. And in objecting to this song, these Christians were not only forgetting their Bibles, they were also disconnecting themselves from a culture crying out for honesty and from a very rich vein of Christian experience flowing from Job through John of the Cross to the African-American spirituals. The honest truth of the matter is this. The predominant experience of true disciples is less a continual delight in God's intimate presence than a continual desire for that presence. As the psalmist says, it is a thirst, a fainting of the soul, a gnawing hunger, and just as hunger for a feast as the aroma of cooking fills the house is sweeter than the bloatedness and the aroma after the event, so the desire for God is a delight in itself. This is the very condition we find the psalmist celebrating. It is not the comfort of God's presence, but of his distance that draws us to himself. It is not the comfort of God's presence, but of his distance that draws us to himself. His gift to us, therefore, is dissatisfaction and desire. It's the splinter in our shoe, the things the dawn implies, the funeral that whispers in the shadows at every wedding. And so whenever I pretend to other people that my experience of God is more common, more enjoyable, and more immediate than it truly is, I damn them to disappointment with themselves as much as with God. Now, I am not for one minute advocating here the kind of morose faith that moans continually about God's absence. The dark night of the soul is precisely that, a night and not a protracted season. When you have moments of startling encounter, of answered prayer, of pure delight, celebrate them. Shout your hallelujah from the rooftops. God knows we need such hope. But a deepening relationship with God progresses pretty quickly from the primary colors of K-pop and power ballads to the ambiguity of jazz and the demeanor of blues. The word of God, so flirtatious at the start, quickly becomes a question for every answer, driving one crazy like a cryptic crossword clue haunting your day. Over the years, the Holy Spirit has quietly rendered in my soul a sort of relentless addiction of frustration and fascination entwined. And I think this is because God's presence 
is as real to me as a distance in my own soul. I am comforted that this seems to be the common experience of the saints down the ages. They don't feel holier, but hungrier as the years go by. They trust more because they know less and less. They are marked out by the relentlessness of their desire because certainty has been displaced by seeking. It's a kind of homesickness that intensifies as the holidays approach. And so I sometimes feel God's presence tangibly, but often I don't. Like a marriage in its third decade, my relationship with the Lord is certainly a concrete daily reality, but it is not, it cannot, and should not be a continual emotional high. I find myself on a consistent quest for God. And this ache, this relentless groan, this unresolved core, this scanning of the crowd for the face I know, this curse has become my delight. It is the impulse in me that cries out with the psalmist, even in the darkest night and the driest desert, you are my God, eagerly I seek you, my soul thirsts for you, my flesh faints for you, as in a barren and dry land where there is no water. Typically, not all the time, but typically, the silence of God coincides with the suffering of life. Where is God? This is one of my best friends. His name is Nick. We knew each other for nearly two decades. And in April of 2022, he was diagnosed with something called plasma cell leukemia, which is an extremely rare form of blood cancer, so rare that you can't look up 33-year-olds that have it because they don't exist. He's one in 120 million. And a week ago, I sat beside Nick's bedside for eight hours as he entered his last day of hospice care. A wife of seven years, a two-year-old, no pre-existing conditions, no rhyme or reason for him to have this cancer, no answers, no explanations. Seven confused doctors in Knoxville who in April 2022 said, we've never seen anyone, anyone in our collective 100 years of cancer research. We've never seen anyone with this. And then world-class doctors at Sarah Cannon in Nashville who did everything they possibly could to heal his body, finally coming to the point where they literally said, we can continue to do things to Nick, but we can no longer do anything for Nick. People literally all over the country praying for Nick 
for the past 17 months. People literally all over the country interceding on his behalf when he doesn't even have the capacity to speak his own prayer. Why? Why did cancer wreak havoc on a husband and a father's body and take him before his child ever knew him? Why would God allow a child to be born into a family if he knew two years later half the family would no longer exist? I want to know the answer to that question. I don't know the answer to that question. I probably will never know the answer to that question. The world is chaos. And yet... I'm sitting there on Saturday asking Jesus the exact same question. And the Holy Spirit, I, I believe, just gently brings to mind the scene in the magician's nephew between Diggory and Aslan, Diggory the boy pleading with the lion Aslan on behalf of his dying mother. But please... Please, won't you, can't you give me something that will cure my mother? And up until then, he had been looking at the lion's great feet and the huge claws on them. But now, in his despair, he looked up at his face. And what he saw surprised him as much as anything in his whole life. For the tawny face was bent down near his own, and wonder of wonders, great shining tears stood in the lion's eyes. They were such big, bright tears compared with Diggory's own that for a moment he felt as if the lion must really be sorrier about his mother than he was himself. My son, my son, said Aslan, I know grief is great. The tears of Jesus that stream down his face as he looks at the tomb of Lazarus, as Lazarus are not just tears of sadness as we typically think. They are actually tears of anger. God hates death. And life is cruel, it's unfair, and it's unbelievably painful, which is why the experience of what so many of the disciples felt during those 48 hours that Jesus was in the ground is what all of us feel so much of the time. Thomas, who has such an honest line that most of us can identify with, when he hears about the resurrection, he says, I'm not believing a thing until I see where they put the nails in his hands. Translation, y'all be naive all you want, but I've already been made to look foolish by him a week ago when I said that we were going to follow him to death. Fool me once, fine, but I will not look stupid again. And what does Jesus do? He meets him in the most personal of ways, tending to his most intimate of doubts. The circumstances far outside your control that are unbearably difficult and unimaginably painful 
that cause you to doubt everything you thought you knew, everything you thought you heard, and everything you thought you believed. And the interruption that is the incarnation, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the outpouring of the Spirit of God on the people of God is one giant neon sign that reads, God has not left you out to dry. When the only prayer that we have to pray are the prayer of tears, we hear the words of God the Spirit because we do not know what to pray for as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with inexpressible groanings. The last 17 months, I have not had the words. In the last month, I really haven't had the words. Except ones like, what in the literal hell? And the Spirit says, I am with you in wordless prayer. Perpetual ache. And the question that constantly surfaces in times of inexplicable grief are, did his life matter? Does any of it matter? There's a story by a Russian novelist, Alexander Solhenitsyn, where he shares being imprisoned by Stalin in the Siberian concentration camp. And he's slaving away at sub-zero temps, and he's done. He's reached the end of his stamina. He can't do it anymore. So he goes and sits on a bench, because sitting on the bench was the cue for the guard to come kill you. And so he goes, he sits on the bench. And before the guard gets to him, a man comes up to him, takes his finger, puts it down in the dirt, and draws a cross and walks away. And in that moment, he realized there had to be something greater than the Soviet Union. He knew that the God of suffering would meet him in the Siberian slave trade. Only the presence of God at Golgotha could awaken the concentration camp with fresh possibilities. More than just divine empathy, the cross rekindled the actual hope that everything is possible for God. Living in the space of unanswered prayer, we need a death-defying, big, eternal God who dies in Siberian concentration camps and senseless car crashes and in hospice rooms in Nashville, Tennessee, in order to destroy death and release the indestructible life. I hold the keys to death. I am banking my life on one thing, that God does not lie. And that his promise is actually true. There is nothing, nothing like senseless evil to make you question absolutely everything you have staked your life on. And there is nothing like senseless evil to confirm that the story of the resurrection is the only story that is powerful enough to meet us in the graveyard. A powerful enough God to do something but doesn't care is of no help. An empathetic enough God to care but unable to do something is of no help. But a God who marries unbelievable love with unexplainable power allows us in life's most 
gut-wrenching moments to live in confusion, mystery, and mustard seed hope. And it's not because we have open-handedly given away to nihilism, nothing matters, the world's confusing, who cares? But because we've given away to resurrection, it all matters. He's remaking the entire world. Everything sad is becoming untrue. The body of a 33-year-old man that came from the dust, as said on the first pages of Scripture, will be for a time cremated back into dust. And then, in the end, God will remake and resurrect his entire body and will give it back to him. Why? Because God keeps his promises. If the resurrection is true, it is not just true for God. It is true for us. It has to be true in the hospice room if it's going to be true. It has to be true when life does not give us clean answers. In the midst of honest prayer, resurrection is our literally only hope. Otherwise, his life does not matter. The grieving is vanity. Who cares? But the entire premise of our faith is banked on one line. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. I have shared this before, but I will end with a story which captures so much of my journey, really just in general, for the last two years. Um, but particularly with the situation, and it's worth repeating. In his memoir, Report to Greco, Nikos Kazanska shares that as a young man, he spent a summer in a monastery in which he had a series of conversations with an old monk. And wanting to figure out what depth and spiritual maturity looks like, feels like, sounds like, he said to the older man, Father, do you still wrestle with the devil? And to his surprise, the old man replied, No, I used to when I was younger, but now I have grown old and tired, and the devil has grown old and tired of me, so he just leaves me alone. Oh, wow, he said. So your life must be pretty simple, pretty easy then. Easy. Heck no. It's much worse. Now I wrestle with God. You wrestle with God and expect to win. No, said the old man. I wrestle with God and expect to lose. But my bones remain with me and they continue to resist. Stuffing it is not the answer. To dismiss or disengage or deny does not make pain go away. It actually makes it harder. It makes us more calloused, and it grows in us the seeds of deep bitterness. God did not make us to live in denial. To be in denial is to lie to yourself on what actually is grievous about the world. The world can be an absolute train wreck, and we need to be absolutely honest about that. But easy answers are also not the way. Accepting the excruciating pain that we experience in life means wrestling with it. Not covering it with a chicken soup for the soul cliches. It is a fight. My hope has always been for this church to be a big enough space for people to believe, question, doubt, rebelieve, recommit, 
grow frustrated, be honest, have more questions than they have answers, and to be free not to hide any of that. I want the widest range of that experience because we have all been there at some point or another, and if you haven't, you will be. But here's what that means at the base level. Take the fight to God. So much of the confusion of God is the unknown. And just placating with that, it is what it is. That doesn't work. It may sound nice. It might even sound mature. But we are fooling ourselves if we do not engage with the invitation to wrestle with God. The story of God is a wrestle and he will wrestle you down in the gentlest of ways. But to engage in a world filled with needless suffering and gross evil, the invitation is to take the fight to God, especially, especially in the ache of unanswered prayer. It is the only way through. Would you pray with me? Thank you for listening to this message. If you want more information about our church, please visit us online at mosaicnox.org.